Welcome to the Midwest Nice Podcast, the show with honest political discourse, Dip and Ranch. This is your host, John Flynn, and today I'm joined by Amy Lipka, Lauren Kaufman, and Mario Brown Fallon. Keep your accent strong and a potato salad close by, because you're going to need it. Let's get the show started. to the show this is your host john flynn again i hope uh i hope you enjoyed our first show enough and that's why you're coming back uh today i'm joined by lauren kaufman amy Lubka, and mariel brown fallon again because i don't have any other friends hey john high expectations very high <laughs> hey everyone yeah uh happy oberon day everyone michiganders and bells enthusiasts it is oberon day i've never participated in it but it is oberon day what does this mean? Well, for those of you out there, and for Mariel, thank you, who's not from here, it's a beer that Bell's Bell's Brewery Bell's Brewery makes in Kalamazoo. Um, this is like Christmas for people from Michigan. We also have Christmas. Christmas, so. except for it means it's hopefully going to get warmer soon. It's like Christmas, but you drink less, <laughs> and with a slice of orange. My family, and with <laughs> and with a slice of orange. What fruit is associated with Christmas? Cranberries. Also oranges in the stocking. Oranges. That's a thing? Yep. Is that how they do it in Cedar Springs? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's left over from like the 1940s when everybody got popcorn. It, oranges and orange were really expensive. And so you'd get it in like the toe of your stocking. Right, right. Cool. Interesting. Not really. Spoiled millennials. <laughs> get oranges all happy. the time. Can't be happy with just Whole an orange. Whole Foods has <laughs> oranges year round. Can't be happy just with oranges. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to talk about today is the blue wave that's currently cascading from sea to shining sea across this great nation, uh, and hopefully going to hit Michigan pretty soon in the midterms. Um, do we think that the blue wave is going to hit Michigan? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I think that a lot of what happened last year was like there wasn't a lot going on, so like everyone was pouring their time and energy and money into a few specific races and obviously with so many races going on this year that can't really happen like in a vacuum anymore but I think it really just all depends on who gets out there to volunteer and give and vote and I think that Democrats are still really motivated so I'm hopeful. Yeah Mm -hmm. I definitely think that the blue wave is coming to Michigan in 2018 and I think that part of the reason is because We have had, you know, obviously the election in Alabama and a lot of um, the elections in Virginia, but then specifically most recently um, in PA 18, we saw Connor Lamb flip a really red district. Um, Then I think that as long as folks who are running in Michigan take the lessons uh, from places like Pennsylvania, um, they'll be good to go. And I think one of the biggest things is, is going to be Um, Democrats making sure that they champion the values of the labor movement uh, because there was a huge labor presence in PA 18. I think it was like 20% of the residents were either uh, retired members or current members of labor unions. And because um, Lamb came out so strong 
for every working person's right to be able to organize and join a, a, um, a union. Um, he got all of those people to come out and canvas with him and, and got to be in touch with those networks. And so I think that um, any politician running here in Michigan, because we also have a huge labor presence with the auto industry um, and manufacturing, I think that any candidate, Dem candidate, should um, heed those lessons. Yeah, and to second that, the um, AFL-CIO and Richard Trumka just posted a really great piece on Medium about the role that the labor movements played in Connor Lamb's election, and um, it just really speaks to the power of those kind of old-fashioned networks coming together and rejoining and uh, really making sure that labor allies are uh, propelling people to Washington. And I definitely think kind of to echo what Amy said, I think after the Women's March, people were, I know I was a little concerned about how is this going to go, are people going to burn themselves out, and I think people are really... Um, piggybacking on the energy that they've gotten and it's just kind of propelling the movement people are excited to see these victories and so they're just donating to more candidates and they're going out and knocking more doors and so I think we're in a good place going into November yeah I think Pennsylvania is so similar to Michigan especially I mean as far as just the Rust Belt's concerned the economy is extremely similar it's all manufacturing that's been I mean rusting out for the past couple of decades um and seeing Connor lamb win in pennsylvania the way he did um i think almost it's even better that it was super close because it really um showing people how much those single votes matter what was the did it end up being 700 it was like maybe less than 700 votes yeah yeah i think after the the ballots went in it was like 640 or something like that so well a blowout probably would have been even better (laughs) But um, no, but I mean, for the district, that is a blowout. Like there was no right. He had Trump no won right. there by twenty points. <laughs> he had no right being so. that close. And yeah, he held right. it and got the seat. That's and amazing. And definitely, hopefully, will like motivate people to go out and vote more than a blowout would. Right. Democrats are going to show up. I don't need to. No, Democrats are going to show up, and you're going to show up with them because you could cast that deciding ballot. Yeah, and if you're talking about because that was an area, like Mariel said, that Trump won by how many? 20. 20. And so then, because uh, the next uh, sort of portion of this that I wanted to bring up was how Trump won Michigan in 2016. Um, and so how do, you know, how do we spring back from that? Well, it seems like everywhere is sort of springing back on its own, but um, it's sort of a big leap backwards. And even just traveling around here, especially during the election, it was, uh, I think, definitely people in Michigan were probably less caught off guard by him winning the election than people in other parts of the country. They pretty much had the signs on the side of the freeway market cornered. (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you know, probably every 100 yards on every major freeway was a Trump sign and they were hanging him off of bridges illegally. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I I think it fooled they fooled the Hillary campaign. I think that they also thought Mm -hmm. that they were going to win, too. Well, and with because the whole the Facebook thing that's happening right now. I remember my uh, one of my good friends and my old roommate, he's from Howell originally, so very much was Trump country during the election, and talking to him about it when it was going on and saying, because I still definitely was in the mindset during a lot of it of like, yeah, well, people aren't crazy. They're not going to, like, Hillary's going to win. This just There's no way it's going to happen. And he was always sort of, opposite and like i don't know like on my facebook like literally every single post is if if it's not a pro-trump thing it's a super anti-hillary thing um 
and so it, it's really hard to I think it, those areas still haven't changed too much since the election, even with everything negative that's happened. Well, and it's kind of interesting because we're sort of in uncharted territory right now where midterm elections are generally pretty low energy. You know, the only Sad. thing people know. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> um, the only thing that people know about is, is the economy doing well? Is the economy not doing well? Like, what signifiers am I getting from the media? But right now, I think people have more information. They're going to local party meetings. They're seeing these great candidates that they're energized for. Um, the Michigan Democratic Party convention, um, just to speak to the local situation here, um, the convention is happening in Detroit on April 15th. And I've seen a lot of content where people are talking about that and seem excited. And we're expecting a pretty big turnout here. And I think it's great that people are getting uh, really involved in a way that I think because some people were so sure that Hillary had it locked up, who would vote for Donald Trump, maybe they weren't paying as much attention as what they would be in a general election year. Yeah, and I think people are definitely learning more and paying more attention to what their representatives are doing. So whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, people are holding their reps accountable and paying attention in ways that they haven't before. And so I think that's going to be a, a big part of it, too, is actually just like being informed about who your rep is, when their seat is up, why it's important, and like knowing very specific things about them, like whether they voted for the health care bill, whether they voted for the tax bill, and then how it affects people here. Yeah, and I think just like going back to the whole point about unions, I think that we as like a party need to think about the Democrats that we lost in 2016. Um, or maybe the undecided, unaffiliated, however they identified. Um, and I think that we know that a lot of those folks were white working class um, folks and a lot of their value, like they're interested in the economy and jobs and, and their life on the day to day. And I think that that's even more reason for Democrats, you know, obviously to work closely with unions because um, they're the ones who are championing, you know. Uh, living wage and decent benefits and, um, you know, things like that. So I just think that obviously it's more multifaceted than needing to focus on, like, labor issues and the economy. But I think that specifically, I wouldn't say that overall, but I'd say specifically in Michigan um, and, and places that we were shocked to see go for Trump, um, yeah, I think there's going to need to be like a, a renewed focus on them. Well, yeah, I agree. And I I think that part of it is that because the way that the economy has been going and other things like that, people in Michigan tend to vote for the change candidates. And so that kind of makes sense why Michigan went for Trump. And now since Democrats are kind of, you know, we're down, we're fighting back now, I think that also will give us a better shot. Yeah, and to speak to those labor issues, I think it's important to think about how those have been conveyed in the past, which a lot of times has been white working class voters. Um, but labor has also been on the right side of history when it comes to civil rights and the women's movement and mm -hmm. thinking about how we can move that forward and thinking about how some of those messages, especially things like Fight for 15, how those messages resonate with all sectors of American workers. Right, right. So, yeah. Got to get out there and talk to more angry white people. <laughs> New York Times is doing that job for us, so we yeah. don't have to. Yeah. And to speak to that, Lauren, too, I think it's going to be like making sure that a lot of the people who maybe stayed home in 2016 are going to get out and vote in 2018 and making sure that people can get out and vote in 2018, like are able to, mm -hmm. um, not just that they want to, but that they have the privilege to be able to do that. 
Right. Something else along those same lines that I wanted to get into um, is we have, there is so much focus on the midterm uh, congressional and Senate elections that are happening right now, but there's also so much issue advocacy and things like that that are going on at the same time that I think are getting a little washed out by everything that's going on. And I think those things are equally as important, especially um, we've done a lot of work on you know, even small things like local millages and they just get so little attention that if you put, you know, any effort, any advertising into it at all, you basically win like every single time. Um, and some of these things are really important, you know, funding for, uh, funding for libraries and road millages and everything else. Um, and then if you talk bigger issues like, uh, medical marijuana and everything else like that, I think it's all getting a little bit washed out by, the midterm elections that are right around the corner. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with that right now, but I also think that the same thing that you said about the past, like if you put any effort into advertising them, then you can win. I think that might also be true because a lot of people are going to be at the polls anyway. So if you get their eyes on like a piece of mail or a yard sign or a digital ad or a website or something and kind of teach people even a little bit about like what side they might fall on or why they should fall on your side, then, I mean, if they're going to be voting anyway, like that's probably not going to be a problem. So I don't know. I'm optimistic. Yeah. I will say things at the local level tend to work a little bit differently than at the state level, um, just because you have interest groups like the uh like americans for prosperity or the chamber um who come out swinging hard and backed up with giant bags of money um so it can be a little bit harder to win on things like that but i think if you like mariel was talking about earlier communicating with voters about the things that really matter to them and talking about their values and why things like gerrymandering might be a big boring word um, but it actually determines why that guy down the street from you is in a completely different district even though your kids go to the same schools mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And you kind of break down those issues for people. That is a place, especially where, you know, digital advertising, which we do, um, can be a really great way to reach people where they live, literally on their phones, in their homes, um, in a way that having public forums that might be hard for a single mom with three kids to go to in the evenings when she's also working a second job, but she can watch a video on the internet just like everyone else. So I think that's going to be a really important and could be a big, change maker um for elections going forward yeah you put your youtube pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else it's what we always say the youtube watching pants <laughs> um but it is easier if you do have truckloads full of money most the things are hush, that's what he was talking about <laughs> excellent reference um and something else that we along with this that we touched on a little bit in the first podcast um was the amount of work that actually goes into these, um, from the outside, seemingly small, uh, either issue advocacy campaigns or local city council races. And it was something that I was definitely blown away by when I first started uh, volunteering and uh, helping doing actual you know, field work for a campaign and knocking doors and things like that. Um, yeah, it's something that really shocked me. And then you know, the amount of work that you're putting in for such a small amount of votes a lot of times. It, well, part of that is it it does make, that's what really makes the difference because if something's getting decided by a couple hundred votes, 
it's like every door you knock really is making a huge difference. Yeah, and I'll say that can be a great motivator. Um, Working on a state house race and a city council race was probably some of the hardest work that I've ever done because it's like you go out and knock doors until it gets dark and then you go home and you enter all those numbers or you make phone calls or you stuff envelopes. And so the job kind of never ends. Um, But it is, you know, a great motivator that every door you knock might make that difference. And it helps that the candidates can really get out there and meet more of the voters when you're in a congressional race. If they're knocking doors, that's kind of a waste of their time because they could be phoning for money or they could be going to meetings with Money, (laughs) please. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Laura. Favorite congressional (laughs) candidate right there. Um, Yeah, so it it is kind of a better use of their time to be going to a meeting where there's hundreds of people or doing a television interview. Um, But at the local level, that's where you really get to meet your potential elected officials and they can uh, make that difference face to face yeah also like yeah i think a lot of people have the elections that they're used to seeing are presidential elections and those are like the perfect examples of like how work should be broken up and can be broken up if you have literally millions and millions of dollars to do it like you have specific field team and then hundreds thousands of staff and then you have finance and then you have communications and then you have digital then you have operations and then you have what else am i totally forgetting you have advance and then come on guys am i forgetting any did i hit it all but like oh i don't know (laughs) it's fine but like it's not field and it's not digital then what are you doing so the point that i'm making is like so that's how a campaign can run if you have the money but on these like local races um in cities and towns um you have one person who's sometimes doing the job of like four or five different people they're wearing so many different hats um and so i'd like to think yeah that that in a lot of ways like local elections are a lot more challenging simply because you are working with such a smaller amount of money um and people like to think that you know you can win a race without money uh but unfortunately most of the time in this post citizens united world we're living in um you do need a good amount of money to function um but at the same time you're probably going to have some people who are playing the role of like finance and comms most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, And especially with ballot measures, it seems like uh, it's like a lot of people there, they have a full-time job and then they're doing this on the side and then everyone else is a volunteer Mm -hmm. for an issue that is like not an exciting candidate. And so, yeah, it's just like a lot harder. I think, I mean, obviously all campaign work is hard, but with fewer resources and fewer people and maybe a less exciting topic. Um. (laughs) And it can be interesting because you can have, you know, teachers who are out there advocating for an education millage and you can have librarians who are trying to get more funding for the library that they work at. And we would hope that these, you know, public employees wouldn't have to be out there you know, advocating for the security of their jobs, but sometimes they can be the best messengers. And so it's Mm -hmm. both a really inspiring thing that these people are out there talking about what they do every day and what they love, but also, you know, I would hope that the people in charge would just do the right thing so they wouldn't have to. (laughs) Also, I'd just like to say that um, most of the ballot measures that I've ever voted on have been extremely confusing um the way that it's worded Mm -hmm. and um i think that that's also a huge challenge like trying to 
decipher it. Like sometimes you're like most of the time people's campaign is like yes on four or no on two because people you just can't get into the details. You have to either tell people, oh, you see that question? You vote yes. Like you can't even break it down to them because they're so complicated. So like let's unpack why that is or like what's up? Lawyers. Lawyers. It's lawyers. Oh, they're lawyers. Um, Damn. So there are so many different regulations that are in place. And just a couple of examples that I've seen in the past, you have like regulations on what the font size has to be. And obviously, like when you're printing out a ballot measure for people to sign a petition, you want to have it small enough that you can get everything on one sheet so you're not flipping through multiple pages. And they've had people, I think, successfully sued because their font size was eight points instead of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, Doing hero's work. <laughs> right, that's Doing the hero's work. Um, but only when it's the bad guys, it's a problem. When it's us, then we did right. the right thing and we followed the rules. Right. It's, yeah. it's a you problem. Um, but yeah, so there's just so many different regulations in place that you really have to cover each step because you do have people, voters directly deciding on policy, right. um, which is both, you know, direct action which we love to see and really admirable but um when people don't even know what it says it's just kind of like oh well i guess i'll vote right and when most people like probably don't look at their ballot measures before they go to the polls and then they're like i have no idea what this means and when to bring them up again americans for prosperity (laughs) has millions of dollars that they're sinking into individual ballot measures and they're sending you four or five large full-colored mailers, that can really, that might be the only interaction that a voter has with the ballot initiative before they go to the polling place. Right. Right, because the way that they're worded isn't necessarily even partisan. Right. Right. So even if you would identify yourself as, like, a Democrat and you see something that's, like, very conservative, you might not even know it. Yeah. And on the one hand, you know, you want policy to be – good policy should be good policy, and it shouldn't make a difference in either direction. But um, people – voters do use those signifiers as, you know, I'm a union member. Right. The UAW supports X, Y, and Z, or I'm a Democrat, and those are the values that I align myself with. And that is a signifier that I use sometimes when I go to the polling place. Like, you know, you have that partisan label next to a person, and you hope that they would align themselves – more so at least than the other candidate on the ballot. So The American voter operates on a color-based system. So <laughs> red, bad, blue, good, baby smiles, good, uh, sad, person in shadows, bad. Black and white, empty swing on a playground, empty bad. Swings, <laughs> That's bad. Empty swing can mean anything. It can mean we're going to war. It can mean we're getting new taxes. It could be anything. Uh, yeah, so that was... Something I felt like we definitely needed to talk about. So next, just to break it up a little bit, figured we could get into our weekly trivia section. Bring the uh, bring the atmosphere back up for a moment. It's getting a little getting a little deep for my taste at the end. Getting a little boring talking about ballot measures. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> They're exciting. We, everything doesn't have to be exciting. <laughs> All candidates don't need to be exciting. I want a boring boring person that sits in their office and reads legislature all day i think that's what we're gonna get to (laughs) in the next three years yep yeah people have had enough exciting we've had enough excitement we need to chill out yep um so last week i know we talked about some some standards for this trivia section it got a little heated um does anybody have any anything else they want to throw into the bag yeah no cheating lauren kaufman well, she just knew the questions last time. It's not <laughs> cheating to be smart. I beg to differ. <laughs> yeah. It's cheating. I'll stop Who's... Googling. Yeah. Okay. 
I'm just going to get into it before we get angry at each other again. Uh, first question, and let's take a second to think about it. What is the oldest city in Michigan? So Lauren, what do you think? Why do I have to go first? Because you're sitting in front of me. <laughs> uh, is it... I'm going in a circular pattern. Is it Sault Ste. Marie? It is Sault Ste. Marie. Are you kidding? Why do you have to get... Okay, a, that was my backup I, I can't answer. E I thought it was wrong. I can't even get back to the <laughs> ham horn fast enough. Oh, is it Sault Ste. Marie? Yes. I don't know. From a long line of Ubers, so... It's Sault Ste. Marie. It was established... What year do you think it was established? Literally no idea. Let's do closest without going over. Je uh, no, that's Price is Right style. <laughs> Any kind of guess. Um, I mean, some people must have settled it from Canada, I'm guessing, because... She didn't even have obviously. to take the uh, third grade Michigan history class, <laughs> so <laughs> good on you. I'm going to guess 1724. 1724. 1745. 1723. 1423. Wow. Mm -hmm. Closest without going <laughs> Isn't over. Isn't that medieval? That's yeah. before 1492. <laughs> Haven't you heard the song? Right. It's closest without going over. So I'm guessing it's going to be less than. Okay. Next one. time you're just going to say one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay. The actual year. Technically, Lauren wins for being closest <laughs> without going over, but that's because she basically bet $1. How about trivia? Just call Does Lauren know the answer? Uh, so the answer is 1668. Huh. It okay, was but a, technically I was the closest. It was just, but I said closest without going over. So I, was, I don't know who let you make the rules. I would have thought it was later than that. So that's, that's yeah. good for them. It was, early. It yeah, was established <laughs> in the Upper Peninsula as a French trading post between Canada and the now U.S. territory. Hmm. It's also considered the first European settlement in the Midwest, and it's the third oldest city in the entire U.S. Wow. Literally, I'm not going to say I've never heard of it, but I feel like it just doesn't get thrown around really. And like, I mean, okay, I'm from Massachusetts, so everybody's always like, Boston invented literally everything <laughs> and nowhere else exists. I've heard it's that. It's just where so, Ben Franklin yeah. lived. That's all they got. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that later. Or is that Philadelphia? Am I an yep, idiot? That's Philadelphia. <laughs> okay, I'm just an idiot. Like I said, we'll, well talk about we it do, later. This that is why we do the, This is why we do the trivia section, okay? <laughs> we're all learning. We're all, we're all learning. You're right. <laughs> all right. Let's get into question two. Detroit residents were the first to be assigned what in 1879? This is a tough one. All right. Let's go with Mariel first to give everybody else a chance. What, what do you mean by assigned? Detroit residents were the first to be assigned what in no, 1879? I, I heard the question. Parking spots. <laughs> Could be anything. Okay, so I'm it's thinking, a hard question. I'm thinking car. Okay. So I'm thinking cars. You know, I don't think it's assigned seats because I don't think they would be able to attract that. So I'm going to say parking spots. Final answer. What is it, Regis? In what year? 1879. Oh, were there even cars? Uh, Detroit has always had cars, Mariel. Like, I don't know thought, what you're saying. Maybe like a wood-fired car. All right. Just tell me my answer is wrong you and throw move on. logs in it. Your answer is wrong. Okay. And let's move on. Great. I would like to say that I'm still confused by the question. 
Um, I don't know. What did they have in 1863? 79. 79. <laughs> <laughs> so not in 1863. I'm paying attention. Um, Torches, know. dirt, wood huts. <laughs> dirt. <laughs> the um, first field to be assigned dirt. <laughs> um, I don't know. Legislative districts? That's a good guess. Lauren? That's a good guess. Is it phone numbers? It's phone numbers. <laughs> I'm so angry right uh, now. By seven, it's well. The article said it seems by the, it seemed that by 1879 the city had grown so large that the operators sitting in those back smoky rooms were no longer able to route the calls by name alone. Mm. The I, first city that had too many people with too, too many, many John phones. Smiths. I feel like this is in the Grand Rapids Public Museum somewhere. Um, I think Grand Rapids was the first major city to have fluoride in the water. Um, mm. So Michigan was actually on the cutting edge for a lot of, you know, mm. technologies that we... Michigan also had... I had to look up a lot of facts to get <laughs> good questions. Uh, the first paved road. Woodward Avenue in Detroit was the first oh, paved road still in, paved, Amer- you in America. Guys. Wow. Yeah. First to ban the death penalty. Yeah. That was a question last week. I looked up a lot I don't of know things. about that. I'm going to have to look at my Massachusetts history and get back to you. We actually um, were, I think we came into the union without a death penalty. So, like, we've never, as a state, had it, if I remember correctly, which yeah. is cool. Good for Go us. Miss. But, uh, yeah, don't worry. We kill plenty of people extrajudicially in this state. So, right. you can still get your murders. <laughs> <laughs> that got so dark. <laughs> no laughs. All right, let's do question three. <laughs> Take us out of this whole job. Okay, much brighter question. Uh, not that the last one was wrong, but it just got dark at the end. Uh, the Detroit Zoo is the first zoo in the United States that did not have what? It's a real fun one. There's some intense thought going on around me right now. Anyone want to venture a guess? No, not really. <laughs> Just throw something out. So I'm going to say that it's probably not tigers because Detroit tigers. Is it that did not have? It's the first zoo that did not have something. Okay. Think outside the box. The box. I think animals are inside the box. Yeah, they're inside the box. Well, and it's, the yeah, okay. Maybe not in Detroit, though. Mm. When mm. was the last time you went to the zoo? kindergarten or probably not, like well, two last years time ago to, last time i went to the detroit zoo <laughs> were the animals I still next in door boxes, Park, so. <laughs> <laughs> boxes. Have... i'm gonna guess gorilla it's a guess <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna say if it's a good guess John, i'm but literally it is, sick of you trolling me it is a guess <laughs> i honestly have no idea mm. i'll pass on this one amy i really don't want to answer this one <laughs> <laughs> Nobody got it. That's how I feel. The correct answer is bars. It was the first zoo in the United States to feature natural habitats without the use of bars to give the animals more of a sense of freedom. That was a trick. That was such a trick question. I said the thing outside the box. I know. And I should have gotten it from that clue, but I didn't. But also good for us. Yeah. We do things. We, Yes, we do. (laughs) Good for those animals. Yeah, good for the animals. Uh, so that was a, a rousing. John, can I request multiple choice next time? Hmm. 
No. So like three options and we have to fight for the best ones? It, well, it takes I me just, long It's enough, better than... It takes me long enough just to find the, <laughs> the questions. <laughs> I don't want to have to rig up a whole multiple choice situation. It's better True, than pick an answer easy. out of everything in the entire world. Yeah, the breadth of hu- total breadth of human knowledge. <laughs> That's the kind of questions I like. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll try to make them a little easier next time. Uh, so next, we need to get into uh, current events in the Midwest. Uh, and actually, our host Mariel has to leave. She just got a new dog yesterday and has to go let the dog out. I did. Who let the dogs out? It was me the whole time. It was Mariel the whole time. <laughs> so, so Godspeed, and uh, there's no more trivia questions, so there's nobody for John to make fun of, and I'm sorry about that, but Lauren, I think you can carry it from here. We'll be just fine without you. <laughs> that's, that's hurtful. Mm. Tell the dog we say hi. Anyways, in local Midwest news, uh, if you haven't been living under a rock, uh, you've probably seen the gun control protests that have been happening lately um there was the of course the biggest one in dc but every i think basically every state mostly and state capitals major cities had their own protests going on there was definitely one uh, a couple thousand strong here in downtown lansing um which is obviously a response to the to the mass shooting in parkland um well, and also in response to the hundreds of other mass shootings that have been happening, uh, I think there's some crazy number I saw the other day of the amount that had happened since, I think like 73 people have been killed since the Parkland shooting um, and other separate incidents. Um, so obviously, it's definitely affecting everyone, uh, especially in the Midwest. And there is, um, especially uh, a lot of areas of the Midwest do have a deeply established gun culture. Um, people typically associate that um, with maybe the South, um, but it can be just as strong in uh, in the Midwest and Michigan. Some parts of Michigan are kind of like the South. Yeah, I like to call Central Michigan West Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it definitely it, it hits home here a lot. Um, I don't know if there well there was a so there was a, a mass shooting in Kalamazoo, I think, two years ago. Uh, there was an Uber driver um, that was attacking people. Um, so it, it spread to to basically every state, um, and it's been going on for quite a while. And it seems like um, the movement has uh, sort of very young people have taken the reins on this, um, which I think is really genius because they are the people that are being affected the most by these mass shootings because they keep happening in schools. Yeah, and I'll just bring up, there was some really amazing reporting that the New York Times um, has done in their podcast, um, The Daily, which actually came out today, um, was covering some students who went to a school in Chicago and they were talking about um, shootings that are happening on basically a daily basis in Chicago and some of them felt really put out because Parkland is getting all of this attention and they broke down the numbers of the average income in that community versus the community in Chicago where they lived. And the students from Parkland came and visited them and they had, you know, their after school group met with them and they were really receptive and just talked about how lucky they are to have this platform because of the privilege that they have. Um, But it's just amazing what they're doing with this really tragic situation and that they're using it to help themselves, help 
other students, but also to help people who are in low-income communities where this is just an everyday thing, not necessarily just in schools, but, you know, when you're walking home from school or happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think that they're just, you know, better better people than I am at such a young age, and they're amazing. Yeah, just the amount that they understand about the country and the world that they can continually say, like, you know, I had this tragedy happen to me like just over a month ago and are already saying, okay, but you know, who has it worse than I do? Who is unable to speak out? Who do we need to bring into the fold? Um, that's really admirable. Yeah. And I think, um, well, how it's how it's sort of ramped up, uh, definitely lately after the, uh, the Parkland shootings, not only did the victims of that really find a lane to get their voice, heard in a huge way because they are again the group that is the most affected um but the the kids that have sort of come up to the the leadership of that movement now are just like extremely articulate and are handling Mm -hmm. it really well in a way that i know i couldn't yeah and even Um, high schoolers around the country like i was at the march for our lives here in lansing and the whole march was organized by a 14 year old and she had a few mm -hmm. other high schoolers up to talk and they were like arguably the best speakers that were at the march and there were like experienced like politicians there well and you have the nra and right-wing politicians who are trying to discredit them but they're not just students who are tweeting or who are like using a platform that they've been given they're amazing organizers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the fact that they're getting started at sunk such a young age like i hope i hope that they take on the gun lobby and i hope that they tackle another problem you know because these are really the people who are going to be i think leading political movements in the future and it's great to see them like i think at some on some level it had to be people who are at such a young age because they don't care about making enemies right now they don't care about like what it's going to mean for them in the future because it's like we need to be able to make it to the future and then we'll worry right. about it. Yeah. And I think, um, also I, the, the United States has a history of, uh, students being sort of at the forefront of, uh, any sort of civil rights movement or, uh, things like this. And before it was definitely, uh, geared more towards college students. And now I think this, this recent tragedy has sort of opened up a whole, can of worms into bringing even younger people into the fold um and i i think it it helps it's always helped students be active in this because they do um if they're sort of in education full-time they do have the the time to organize um and well especially the younger people now they they really have a deep understanding of all the platforms that are available now to reach all these people and understand things like social media in a way that older people involved in the movement uh, never would be able to. And then also just the fact that they are currently active in being educated, being in classes, being taught, I think gives people a more active mindset uh, to deal with these kinds of issues because they probably are in school every day talking about this and writing papers about it. And whereas, um, you know, adults have, they might be going to a work, uh, workplace that, um, these things aren't talked about and they're not actively, they don't have the ability to be actively involved in this every day. Yeah. And to kind of bring it back to the Midwest and 
specifically Michigan, it's it's been interesting seeing people's responses to this because there is like a lot of hunting culture here um, and a lot of people who are like very protective of their guns. And so there's definitely I've seen like a few elected officials being nervous to talk about gun control because they're afraid that it's not going to play well in their district. But I also Mm -hmm. think that it's gotten to a point now that even a lot of gun owners are saying like, it's not worth it. You know, like I will give up my gun or like understanding that it's not about taking away everyone's guns. It's just about literally saving lives that I think um, things are just starting to, the tide's starting to turn a little bit. Yeah, um, cause I I know exactly what you mean because I I do come from a hunting family. I go hunting every year, um, and for the most part, I mean, especially my immediate flame family, they weren't ever into the you know like military style weapons, uh, AR-15s and things like that. Um, but definitely, a lot of family friends are, um, and I can see, I have seen even with them, I'm starting to really, I think, just thinking about why they own that more and more than they used to um because the the argument always was well one of the arguments is that you know it's just for sport shooting i like going to the range and shooting beer cans with my ar-15 um and then there's also the people who are way farther on the right who more like hoarding them because they think that uh they're someday that they're gonna have to fight their own government um as short-sighted as that is Uh, And I think get sort of a a deeply rooted fantasy in their head. And I think it, a lot of that comes from an insecurity about how their life is going. And it's people who life hasn't exactly worked out the way that they want to, and they don't feel important. And so they like to have that. It's, it's the same thing as on the TV show, like the doomsday prepper people, they like feeling like they have this greater purpose that they're meant for and that they're more prepared than other people and they know more than other people. Um, same thing with conspiracy theorists. It's, you know, they really enjoy feeling like they have knowledge that other people don't. Um, and so the people that are that far right, I think it's going to take a lot longer for them to, to turn back uh, more towards the center. But um, I think casual, more casual gun owners even people who do own AR-15s and things like that are starting to really think about um, how owning those things is affecting people and do they really need to have those things? Well, and to speak to that, I also come from a hunting family. I am a vegetarian and not a hunter. Um, I've never shot a gun before. I will say that up front. Um, But my dad had a very, he sat me down at a pretty young age and said, you know, I have guns. If you're ever interested in shooting one of them, we can go out and we can do that. I'm more than happy to take you to a gun safety or a hunter safety course. Um, But you don't touch my gun when I'm not around. It will be locked up and I will make sure that you don't have unsupervised access to it. And I think you have a lot of people who are common sense gun owners who are starting to wake up and realize it's not my guns that they're coming for. It's the guns of people who leave them sitting out in front of their small children. It's the people who are babysitting and leave a gun behind the television and don't lock it up. It's those types of guns that need to be out of people's hands or at least locked up safely so that the people who do know how to use them and are using them for protection or for hunting have access, but a child doesn't. And so I think that's kind of a a middle ground that everyone can come to. And I think that um, 
you know, especially for people who do want to keep their keep their access to weapons, I hope that they'll realize that putting those measures in place make it less likely that theirs are taken away as long as they're following those laws. Right. There was a great um, Reddit post that I actually just read today. Somebody was commenting on a, um, there was a, a little internet fight going back and forth between um, some, some more far right uh, gun owners and some more centrist people. And a guy had said, along the lines of what you just said, you know, I've, I'm seeing the writing on the wall and hearing, you know, high school students talking about this passionately on the bus. Um, this is like gun control measures are coming. It might not be immediate, but these things are coming. Eventually the people who are for it are getting more and more politically motivated. So if you want a chance of being able to preserve your hobbies in the way that you want to, you need to start like the, the proposed uh, measures need to start coming from that side. If you want a, a compromise that is mildly in your favor, rather than continuing on the current path of uh, just being really combative about it. And eventually um, the other side is going to get powerful enough that, um, that it's not going to work out as favorably for you. Um, as far as being able to do exactly what you want to do. Um, so the place that these measures need to come from, from their perspective, should be from them. Um, otherwise, they're going to end up not not exactly where they want to be. Well, and I think that's a great point because with these with these kids dragging everyone else into the 21st century in mm-hmm. these attitudes, I think it's... Um, they're coming forward in a very big way and they're making their voices heard. And if people are just going to sit back with their arms crossed and say, no, I'm keeping my guns, they're not going to be a part of that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that there's learning opportunities for everyone. I think um, if you do come from a place where you aren't around people who hunt or own guns for recreation, um, it can be really hard to understand where those folks are coming from. But like I said, pretty much everyone in my high school, you know, enjoyed hunting or enjoyed going to the gun range. And so um, I think it's important for everyone to kind of listen and to be understanding. And I think, you know, especially these um, young people who are coming forward seem to be willing to listen. And it's important that people on the other side are as well. Yeah. And I think definitely the vibe that I've gotten lately is the tide really is turning. Um, something that I was going to bring up was, especially here in Lansing, there has there have been a lot of open carry protests. There's always these uh, very uh, mean-looking guys that like to uh, strap like loaded AK-47s on their back and walk around in a in a protest by the state capitol building to show how tough they are. Um, in a really, I would call it dumb way. Um, and I, I definitely, I feel like in this current climate, they wouldn't dare do that right now. I know that's, that might be thinking too much of them. Um, but I, I feel like the climate is turning a little bit towards that to where it's going to, um, you know, there might still be some crazies who are into it, but there's going to, I think there's going to be less and less people who are willing to be on that that sort of far right extreme of this issue than there were before um and and beyond that you're starting to see as well the uh, businesses even starting to turn against it i know recently um dick sporting goods they decided that they 
we're no longer going to sell any sort of military style weapon. And they also increased the age to buy anything to 21, I think, which, you know, usually the, the guys who are really into gun culture, they're not buying things from dicks. They're getting it from specialty gun stores, smaller gun stores. Um, but it makes it like that much harder yeah, to I, buy a gun. I think the bigger thing is that it's going to help keep more casual people who might be not be comfortable going to one of those specialty stores, but would feel comfortable buying one from a Dick Sporting Goods. Well, and if you have someone who, and this might be a little naive of me, but if you have someone who works at a gun store who's selling guns every day, they're pretty used to seeing regular people come in. Like they know the type of person, right? hopefully, who seems like they should be buying a gun and not you know, and like my local mm-hmm. Kmart back home, <laughs> that person is also selling shoes and clothes and candy. They're probably, I would think, not paying as much attention to who's buying ammunition and, you know, mm-hmm. who's buying a, a rifle. So, um, you know, I think that might also be a place where uh, thinking about when it's appropriate to be selling to people and when it's not is important and who's going to actually be following the laws that we do have in place to protect people and who might be a little bit more lax on those checks. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big box stores, you know, Dick Sporting Goods, Dunham's, places like that, selling guns. I have seen them turn people away a lot of times. They're, you know, they're a certain level of strict based on just that it's a big company and they have so much mm-hmm. to lose. But I think you're right that um, there's there are a lot of, you know, very casual people working there who don't really care about their jobs and would be a lot more lackadaisical about yeah, or selling even, something to or somebody. Or even who might not know what sorts of red flags they should be looking for. And I'm not saying yeah. that every gun store owner is doing that and is necessarily doing their due diligence and might just be trying to make a buck. But, you know, I would hope that they would at least be in a little bit better position to be making those determinations of, you know. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think that when, I mean, this might just be a me thing, but when corporations get on board like this, it makes me think that something bigger is coming or you know it at least like if even if the laws don't change like the federal or state laws don't change like if all of these stores are realizing hey this is going to affect our bottom line and they change the way that they're doing things I mean if you mess with revenue then things (laughs) (laughs) things will change yeah I was gonna say I think we have a pretty good sense of public opinion but uh when I see stores doing things like this and you know taking their ads off of a television show or taking a product out of their stores it means that the tide is turning so that's a really good point Mm -hmm. yeah it's the the long arms of capitalism finally (laughs) turned around the other way it's what the libertarians were talking about you know (laughs) they just didn't think that uh, capitalism was going to bite guns back. <laughs> um, also, I saw, I think it was L.L. Bean that said they also weren't going to sell yeah. assault rifles. And I was like, since when did L.L. Bean? Yeah, it was also uh, Kroger. What? Well, so I, so I thought I was just as weirded out by that. But when I looked it up, apparently in some areas of the country, they are more like, I know Kroger like is... Um, in one region of the country, it's co-owned by a more like outdoor store, so it ends mm-hmm. up being more like a Walmart, you know, where Got they it. have everything, including like a sporting goods section, and they sell, <laughs> which is so weird because it's Kroger, and then LL Bean 
Well, Ella Bean, I think, actually was started originally as an outdoors sort of store like that. It's only, I only know the boots. It's only in the I'm past sorry. like decade or so where they realized, like, hey, we're making a lot more money selling nice boots than we are selling guns. So. <laughs> I've been to the one in Maine, and it is an experience. Yeah. Did you buy any guns while you were there? No, but I did get a picture with a giant boot. So I'll see if I can dig that up for Twitter. Hmm. Should have got a gun while you were there. <laughs> Can't anymore. Nope. So. Yeah. They sell guns everywhere in Michigan. <laughs> it was in the bowling for Columbine. There was a barber shop that also sold ammunition. America's wild. Yeah. I was up north one time. We were hunting and we didn't have anything to do during the day. And my dad's friend who owned the property that we were hunting on, he's, um, I wouldn't call him like a far right nut or anything, but he definitely was into collecting guns and. Um, he had heard that there was a new store that was open and this was in Hillman, Michigan, which is absolute middle of nowhere. And it I actually also, haven't even heard of it, Hillman, yeah, Michigan. It also has, it had the highest percentage of Trump voters in the country that was, hmm. I voted for it. And so decided that we were going to go check out the store while we were there. Little did we know as we got closer and closer that this wasn't like a store that you'd imagine in your head. It was this guy's compound, like literally deep 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 in the woods it was if we didn't have a four-wheel drive truck we probably couldn't have gotten up his driveway um and ended up he had this big warehouse in the back and he opened it up and just an absolute arsenal sitting in this thing i think he made most of his money selling parts and stuff online but very very odd and just the fact that this place existed was a little sketchy he was a nice enough guy when we were there um but then again we were a bunch of you know white dudes uh so who knows? It's good self-awareness, John. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's definitely other people who probably would have felt a lot more uncomfortable in that situation. Never mind. Maybe only Dick's Sporting Goods should be able to sell guns. I only <laughs> want L.L. Bean selling ammunition yeah. from now on. Yeah. I, the bigger uh, the, the the bigger concern place where people get guns is at the gun shows. And I've, right. I've been to plenty of them, and they are scary places. If you don't, if you if that's something that makes you uncomfortable, I've I've been around guns my whole life. I had my dad bought me a 22 when I was like 12 years old. And um and I'd been to even when I was a kid I'd been to a gun show with him. Um but then going as an adult, uh you see things that you didn't notice when you were a kid, like a lot of people <laughs> selling Nazi memorabilia and Confederate flags and big uh beaker and Bunsen burners like basically stuff to make crystal meth sets and instructions on jungle combat and how to uh make booby traps um it's really it, it, they're just as for every person that's doing that there's probably 10 just like old dudes who are selling old world war ii rifles whatever you want to call it um friendly people but there is a lot of that really out there anti-government racist all of these like stuff going on there. i need a gun because the government will come after me is wild to me because like drones <laughs> well just like <laughs> systemic like oppression happens all the time and it's like not to these people and we also know this because when more people of color start buying guns then gun regulation happens yeah our good friend ronnie reagan enacted the toughest uh, gun control laws in the country in California when the Black Panthers started arming themselves at protests. Right, exactly. People are wild. People are wild. Amy <laughs> Lipka.
2018. <laughs> um, something else the, that we were going to get into today, too, is the gerrymandering issue that's been uh, all over the place, but especially lately in the, you know, the Connor Lamb and the, the, the special election there in Pennsylvania was definitely the biggest political story in the past couple of weeks. Um, but an even uh, similarly large story behind that is how uh, the, uh, the state is going to be redistrict. It was, it was gerrymandered in favor of Republicans for a long time. Um, and there was a Supreme Court case that was uh, a lost, and now they're. I, th- I think they're having a professor from a university who's redrawing it. Is that right? They're, they're sure. doing. They're doing it in a more bipartisan way. I'm not sure exactly right. Which what I think they're is doing. Good because, like, obviously, a lot of the people who are anti gerrymandering now are Democrats because the redistricting has been done in favor of Republicans. But like, it's just going to keep happening in the opposite direction every you know every few years and so if we can just have like a bipartisan solution that would be great but easier said than done as a partisan <laughs> i welcome bipartisan non-partisan redistricting so yeah definitely uh, yeah. yeah i think was it we just saw that iowa they do it, it it's a computers com- a computer model that does it just have robots do everything <laughs> yeah everything just give them Missile control. Just let the robots vote. Terminators. Did you just say let the robots vote? That's exactly okay. what I said. Yep. It seems fine. Um, yeah, it is It is just an interesting situation where different states choose their district. I mean, it's up to the states to decide how they draw those district lines, um, which, you know. Is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. Um, but it does, you know. It seems when... like bad. <laughs> well, It's I, usually yeah. bad. I don't I, think, I don't think like you know the country doing it I would be better yeah. <laughs> it's all bad no lines um but i do think you know with different states having different um electoral votes and um you know different numbers of people um it means that you know those those members of congress who are in different in those other states are still making decisions for us and so it is just kind of an interesting concept that what's happening in other uh, states can really you know, Mm -hmm. impact the policy that we see here as well. So it's just been really interesting to watch these. I mean, we have a voting uh, or an anti-gerrymandering ballot measure going on here in Michigan. And just like I've been seeing them pop up all over the country. And it's just been interesting to see people getting super into this um, when it's been a problem for a long time. And it's just like not a sexy thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. But people are like, I mean, Voters, not politicians, is the one here, and it's completely grassroots, and it's like all volunteers, and people are just committed to it. Yeah, back in the good old Obama days when people had time to think about things besides <laughs> the absolute chaos going on uh, at the federal level, I remember there being periods of bigger pushes for gerrymandering reform, uh, especially on like The Daily Show. John Stewart was always pushing really hard on that. And then John Oliver now has definitely done segments on it. Um, and I think Michigan, it got rated as the most gerrymandered state. Um, if it's not the most, it's one of the very top. So I think we're all hoping that uh, what's going on in Pennsylvania right now is going to eventually wash its way over here and we can get some get some real 
reform done. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned that people had time to do this in the Obama administration, because I think the one thing to be said for the Trump administration is that people are just kind of ready to burn the system to the ground. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've seen that what we're currently doing isn't working. Um, so they really want to try something different. And I think that's why you see the thousands and thousands of people signing these petitions for gerrymandering, which I would guess is a word that a lot of people didn't know a few years ago. Um, And so just really seeing that, you know, something has happened to make this the way it is. And we see, you know, the number of people voting for Democrats versus the the amount of Democratic uh, representation in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan is really disproportionate. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter which party's doing it, it's wrong. Uh, because people's voices aren't being heard. Mm-hmm. It definitely seems just like after Trump got elected, how did we let this happen? How can this <laughs> never happen again? I guess we need to learn everything <laughs> about government. <laughs> yeah, it almost has made it easier to protest because it's like, I hate everything <laughs> happening. I don't have to get specific. I could just, you know, yell at a wall. Just have a sign that bad. says bad and bad. just walk around with Sad. it. I saw at the Lansing March for Our Lives, there was someone who had made like a little doll of like Trump who was a puppet for Putin, like literally. And mm-hmm. I was like, no, you're the puppet. No like, puppet. They definitely <laughs> made this. It wasn't, it was very general. It's like they're bringing, they're so proud of it. They're bringing it to every mm-hmm. protest. Yep. Yeah. It's, you can use the same thing for everything now. It's really easy to protest. I saw someone who was using their enough is enough sign on their third or fourth national protest. So Mm -hmm. it's a way to go. Just got it. You can walk wherever any government building in (laughs) D.C. right now and just say, I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. Anywhere. (laughs) You can go literally anywhere and do that. Um, I really want to put that quote on a sign now, you guys. With a picture of Toby's face. Yeah. Yeah. No, God! No, (laughs) God, please, no! 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 Yeah, so really hoping that uh, the the gerrymandering reform, amongst a lot of other things that are uh, going right in other states and fighting back, starts to wash over to Michigan in a meaningful way. Um, Quick update. Uh, for more local news, we talked last week about the governor's race. Um, the current uh, Republican candidates are uh, Lieutenant Governor Brian Kelly and Attorney General Bill Schuette. And current Governor Rick Snyder came out a few days ago and officially endorsed Brian Kelly for governor. So um, Noted Niles Crane impersonator <laughs> Brian Kelly. So the only thing I have to say about this is, did Brian Kelly want him to do that um, rick snyder is like pretty unpopular i think he released an ad with him in it or ads mm. were bought on his behalf so i think i think well they gotta run with it now he showed up to the press conference so yeah. i think so well, we talked about <laughs> this a little earlier and it's sort of i think for a while it definitely seemed like bill shooty was gonna make a move against Rick Snyder as regards to the Flint water crisis to score sort of some political points. Cause it was pretty obvious from a long ago, a long time ago that he was going to run for governor. So I wonder if, I wonder how much Rick Snyder and Bill Schuette really like each other anymore. So that could be why. Um, 
I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing, and it kind of um, shows this idea that there are sort of two views on how Michigan is going right now. Um, and I think, you know, depending on how this primary goes, we'll see what the voters think. Um, but people have a big decision to make in November, and I think people clearly don't think things are going in the right direction. Um, so aligning yourself with the current governor who has created that direction and planned it out um, is an interesting move to make, but we'll see what people think about it. Yeah, I'm definitely interested to see what happens in August in our primary on the Republican side, because I just really don't know. I also think that Bill Schuette is just more well-known, like his name is. I could mm -hmm. be wrong on that, but it seems that way. But they're also both part of the current administration, so I don't know. Yeah, I think Brian Kelly is a little more like in the shadows. He's more like his sideshow Bob kind of minion guy. Sideshow, um, sideshow Mel. Sideshow Mel, yeah. correct. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with that. It sure is, John. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, to wrap this episode up, we like to uh, always end on a silver linings moment. What's going right in our in our great Midwest region right now? And this week, uh, I know it's going to be hard to top the Berging uh, iceberg floating event from last week, but I found something that's that's pretty great. Um, so apparently, and let's preface this by saying this is a man from Ohio. Um, there the bowels was, of the Midwest. <laughs> the, the true bowels of the Midwest, the, the armpit of the Midwest. Um, so, uh, this guy in Ohio, uh, has just finished up a streak of eating Chipotle every day for 500 days. Um, and so the... A lot of the times when he was, it gets better. So a lot of the times when he was going and ordering his Chipotle, he was dressed as Batman because his legal name is Bruce Wayne. Um, and so when I first read this story, it just seems like, you know, some jackass who really wants uh, attention for something bizarre. But I came to find out that there was a previous record of 426 days eating Chipotle uh, in a row. And um, so he decided he was going to break this and Chipotle corporate caught on to what was happening and they agreed to pledge $10 to, uh, I think it was a children's cancer charity for every day that he did it. Um, so it, they ended up donating $5,000 because he just kept going. Um, Good for them. Yeah. So and, is he, clarifying question, is he still going? No, he stopped. He said that he's ready to eat other things, and he stopped at was 500 he, days. Was he only eating Chipotle? Uh, no, I think he was just going there at least once a day. I don't Got think it. he was only, which, you know, that's the true record. Um, but it did say that uh, for his last, uh, his last meal there, he got three quesadillas, and he was wearing his Batman costume. Still going strong. So I love Chipotle. I love Batman, and I love children's charities. This story has it's got it all. everything. It's got this it all. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So and apparently they also reported this guy Bruce Wayne uh, dons this Batman suit and attends children events regularly. Go, you know, goes to hospitals, talks to kids, things like that. I'm really coming around on this guy. I was going to say, this might be the only time I've agreed on something with someone from Ohio, but this man is an American hero. Yeah. Uh, and, and in his uh, his latest post on Instagram uh, this past Tuesday, he said, it isn't just the end of one adventure. It's the start of a new one. That's beautiful. 
You literally said that. Did he do things like before he decided that eating Chipotle every day was his claim to fame? I don't was know he if, just like I'm Batman all I, the time? In his yeah, personal I think life? he was doing the Batman thing beforehand. But I don't How know. How could you not? I don't know if he'd ever tried to break any. If he was one of these um, people who tries to break food records and go to those restaurants where you, he seems like the kind of guy who probably goes to those restaurants where it's like, if you eat this twenty pound burger in twenty minutes and don't throw up, we'll give you free. I mean, fries and t-shirts he, his name is bruce wayne and he's dressed as batman he doesn't really need to do anything else for attention mm-hmm. so just yeah john do you know what his instagram handle is <laughs> i don't uh let me go into this article um it's on fox news though i don't want to give them more clicks there's a lot of uh, dogs on instagram Mr. named bruce wayne his instagram is mr wayne the bat i love that if you want to if you want to if you want to check out more of his work (laughs) um so yeah this i thought this it was just a great story to share oh Uh, he documented all of his chipotle with the receipts yeah like oh my goodness like every day for 500 days is a year and a half like just taking the time to drive to one specific place every day for 500 days so his instagram bio is i'm the guy who at Chipotle for 500 consecutive days, smiley face sunglass emoji, hashtag Bruce Wayne is the Chipotle ambassador. This is America. Yeah, he'll end up, hopefully Chipotle puts him in a commercial or something like that. He deserves more than, um, you know, they sent 5,000 to the charity, so maybe they'll get him on a commercial and he can send more of the money to a charity. Yeah, great story. Uh, and lastly, I also uh, Silver Lining wanted to give a shout out, uh, considering I'm sitting across from two U of M alumni, uh, U of M basketball making it into the Final Four. Thank you, John. That's very big of you. Go Blue. Yeah, I did. I mean, I went to Michigan State, but I kind of stopped caring about the rivalry the second that I graduated. I'm not, so did I, but I'm very I'm, happy that we are winning right now. I'm a super fair weather sports fan. I'm just considering it a win for all of Michigan. All of America. So you're welcome to celebrate with us on Saturday. Yeah. Um, and another uh, shout out, uh, something that got a little overshadowed by that, is Ferris State won the national championship of Division Two basketball. Nice. Good for them. Yeah. I have some friends who went to Ferris State. It's a great place. Yeah. It's a giant university in the middle of the forest, basically. <laughs> I've heard that their cafeteria is great. That's I could be wrong. Really specific. Yeah, it's the only thing I've heard about <laughs> it's Ferris the only State. Thing you know about a lot Ferris of State. wins for Ferris State. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, well, yeah, another great episode. Uh, I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Lauren, Amy, and well, Mariel is out with her dog right now. But uh, if she were here, I'd be thanking her as well. And uh, hope you hope you listen in again next week.